0: Well, good morning, Crossroads. It's a joy to be with you this morning and to open the Word of God. Um, Austin, as the dude said, is out of town, so you can be praying for his travels. Uh, for those of you who have not gotten a chance to meet yet, my name is Matt, and I have the joy of serving with the UCLA Bible Study. Uh, we are, I think, th- three and a half weeks in, and the semester's halfway over for these guys, so we're all in this together um, They just started midterms. You guys are studying for finals. Um, Let's do this. Uh, Our study in Mark uh, with Austin, uh, I hope for you, as has been for me, has been an eye-opening experience, really. Uh, I don't know about for you, but I know that my soul has been challenged and my heart has grown in love for my Savior. Uh, Just seeing... Jesus in all of these interactions in Mark Uh, and what it means to follow Jesus being pulled out so clearly every week. It's just been so helpful. I hope you feel the same way. The question I believe we should have as we go through a book like Mark in our ministry, alongside all of the helpful applications of truth, that we've been seeing, I think the question in our minds and our hearts should be, what do we do with this vision of Jesus? What do we do with a view of our Savior that is week by week, hopefully clearer and more refreshed and renewed? How does seeing Jesus in Mark more clearly and more deeply and more appreciatively and more consistently give us grace and strength to do what our passage this morning calls run the race of faith? This morning I want to spend our time in a text that I believe will help us to take this clearer vision of Jesus we've been seeing in Mark and then spur us on to a greater love for Jesus. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, and we'll be in verses 1 through 4 this morning, as we see what it means to run the race of faith looking to Jesus. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4. Follow as I read. and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Father, we thank you for the time that we are about to have in your word. Uh, Illumine our minds, O Spirit, and open our hearts to the truth that you have in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage before us, there is a conceptualization of faith crafted vividly by the author of Hebrews. And it's the picture of a race, the race of faith. Now, admittedly, this is a metaphor for the Christian life that is familiar to us. If you've read the New Testament, you know it's mentioned several times. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 or 2 Timothy 4. A runner is one of those three pictures that Paul uses in that book. Uh, but to be honest, when we think of the Christian life, we don't often think of it as a race. I think more often, as the collegians and young adults, we think of our faith as Maybe the background or the culture or the beliefs that you grew up with. And in this season, you are finding, hopefully, what a great blessing it is that you grew up in the church. uh, That you learned the things of God, as Timothy did, from a young age. Uh, But maybe as you are challenged by God's word in this season, and you see and experience new things in college, maybe you're seeing right now, you must make your faith your own. Maybe you're a little bit different in how you think about your faith. For some of you, your faith is honestly just fire insurance. It's eternal life insurance. It's a policy that seems like the best deal ever. It's free. It's better than anything even D.C. can get you. But then you feel the obligation to maintain that policy and tend to it. Maybe for others of you, Your faith represents a camp you're supposed to be in. A sort of set of default positions that you're supposed to hold or align with. And you call them your convictions, but they're probably somebody else's. And then maybe at other times, you're not sure if you have all of those same stances that you're supposed to have. And maybe there's some of you where your faith is more like a rabbit's foot or a lucky penny kind of faith. You have this rightful expectation Uh, that God is good and kind and generous and compassionate. And so if you somehow manifest your faith hard enough or good enough, just the right and good parts of God's sovereign will will spill out over into your life. It's kind of a reformed perspective of uh, prosperity gospel in a way. While there are shreds of truth in each of these perspectives, admittedly some more than others, we will find this morning a mere, a simple, a biblical perspective on faith, a perspective that challenges our presupposed thinking about faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus who we cannot see with our own eyes, but who we can see in the Gospels and we have been seeing in Mark. Uh, here in this text, the author of Hebrews wants us to see that the Christian life is a race, a marathon that requires some actual endurance, a race for which there must be actual preparation and strategy. It's a race that extends beyond just the moment of salvation and is a lifelong long endeavor, a race that is difficult, but a race that is worth finishing. This morning we'll see a simple truth that the life of faith is a reality firmly fixed on Jesus. The life of faith is a reality firmly fixed on Jesus. Let's look at three essential functions of a life of faith from this passage three essential functions of a life of faith. And the first is this, in verse 1, you must run the race of faith. You must run the race of faith. There are a lot of ideas packed into this verse here. Uh, But before we get in the weeds of what the race is like and how we are to run, we must understand first... Very simply, that we must run. The main clause, the main idea of this entire section is signified here, like it often is in the Bible, by the main verb. And it's this let us run with endurance, let us run the race set before us. Simplified, let us run. Or let us run the race. The race of faith begins by getting in the race. You must not only see Jesus and understand him, you must at some point choose to follow him. And many of you, by God's grace, have. But when you choose to follow Jesus, when you choose to enter the race, you must actually Run. There must be forward progress. I think some of you have a bib number and a race day goodie bag. You've got your running fit on. You've got your LSB and your tie or your cardigan. But you have no intention of actually running the race. You're more of the spectator type. Back row kind of Christian. No offense to those in the back row or behind the back row. Let's let real Christians like John MacArthur run the race and write letters that are bold for the gospel. I'll just kind of sit on the side and sip a body armor drink like I run, but I'm not going to run. Or maybe you think, well, I'm just not mature enough to run just yet. I've got to get fed in this season. I've got to learn more about how to use my legs. And so you're sitting in the shade watching others run. Maybe it's for you, your school, or your pursuit of your career. I'll, I'll get to it later when I have a stable income. Then I'll run. The author of Hebrews is simply saying, if you have faith, you must run. It's what faith is. Faith must actually be lived out. Faith is active. It demonstrates itself in action. It's what the book of James says. Faith is living. Faith is real. And if faith is real, it is lived out. It's a faith that works. A faith that out of the abundance of the heart speaks and acts and lives. Our passage this morning comes on the heels of Hebrews 11. A great display of what we call the Hall of Faith. Uh, men and women who ran the race of faith. Flip back a page because you need to see this. Look at 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the operating principle in the book of Hebrews, but really in chapters 11 and 12 especially, uh, that as faith is, as Hebrews shows, is faith in Jesus, this is firm belief in the person and the work of Jesus that, yes, apart from works, you can be saved by faith in Jesus. Look at verse 2. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By it, by this faith lived out, the people of old received here it says commendation. It's the root word martus, the same word found in verse 39 of chapter 11. They were commended or having gained approval. It's the same root word translated witnesses in chapter 12, verse 1 in our text. In chapter 11, though, this faith, this living faith, is shown over and over and over uh, to act. To do faith is this belief in and response to the promises of God. And specifically that of salvation in Jesus. Faith runs, so to speak. Look at all the doing and the running in chapter 11. How much action there is with faith. Look at verse 4. Abel offered a sacrifice. Verse 5. Enoch lived in a way that pleased God. Verse 8, Abraham obeyed by moving from his home. And then verse 11, Sarah considered God faithful. Verse 17, Abraham offered up Isaac. Verse 20, Isaac invoked blessings. And so did Jacob in verse 21. Verse 22, Joseph predicted the exodus, and then gave instruction about his bones. Verse 23, Moses was hidden. That's the faith of his mother. And verse 24, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 27, Moses then left Egypt. Verse 28, then he kept the Passover and sprinkled blood on the doorposts. Verse 29, the people Crossed the Red Sea. In verse 30, they encircled Jericho. Verse 31, Rahab welcomed the spies. So much. Chapter 12, verse 1, running, found in, verse 11, in chapter 11. And then to finish it all off, look at chapter 11, verse 32. and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So all of these people, by faith, Offered and obeyed and welcomed and conquered and escaped their way through the race of faith. These witnesses, these commended people by faith ran. And we are surrounded, the author of Hebrews says, by this great cloud of witnesses to the reality and the responsiveness of faith. Now, many have taken this to mean that the saints in heaven are watching us, cheering us on from the bleachers, so to speak. Woohoo! Go, Matt! Run! Yay! Go for it! But this is not at all what the author of Hebrews is conveying here. This is, this is not about our race, our individual race in this way. It's not about what they witness in us. It's about what we see in them, in their pattern of how faith is lived out. That we see from their example that not only we must run, look at verse 1, we see in their example that we must also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely or, as you might know, so easily entangles us, some translations say. You see, in the first century, runners arrived to a race in ornate robes. And they then took those robes off and ran entirely naked. Literally no weight added. And we can understand this because we've all studied ancient history. We have our own modern version. This is the runner taking off the warm-up suit and changing from street shoes to running shoes and wearing just shorts and a light top. The idea is that as we run the race of faith, we are to rid ourselves of any excess weight. Anything that will slow us down. Any hindrance or distraction. We see Moses' example in chapter 11, verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. You see, Moses, in the viewpoint of the author of Hebrews, considered the distant promise of a redeemer, the promised seed, the deliverer of God's people, far greater wealth than Egypt's riches. Some of you are ready, at least you think, to run the race. But you've got so much stuff in your hands. We're not even talking about sin yet. You've got a 10-pound dumbbell of a hobby in each hand. Others of you are holding a big box of used car parts because you're a car person. Uh, Some of you, it's a really, really heavy stethoscope or a video game controller or a movie ticket. It's not that you can't enjoy or pursue these things, It's that you've not assessed whether it's a hindrance to your running the race. For some of you, what you're holding in your hands, what is holding you back, it doesn't weigh anything at all, literally. It's your image on social media or your reputation amongst your peers or your dating relationship even or your summa cum laude. What is hindering you in your race of faith? What is, in the terms of Philippians 3, competing with what should be the surpassing value of knowing Christ? What is to the treasure hidden in a field that is the gospel of Jesus, some fool's gold that you would rather have? Or to the pearl of great price is a white plastic bead that you, because you've held it for so long, you can't tell the difference anymore. Let us lay aside every hindrance. This text also shows us we must lay aside sin. We must not let sin even be named among us, Paul says in Ephesians. We must not be conformed to our former passions, Peter says. We must not be conformed to this world in Romans, Paul says. We are to lay aside that which God Hates and that is sin. I know there are some of you here because this is college ministry who have sin that you aren't willing to let go of quite yet. You know it's wrong. Maybe someone's even talked to you about it recently, but you're just hanging on. Maybe you haven't talked to somebody and you're hiding it. And you just won't lay it aside. It's not quite to you worth laying aside yet. You might say, it's it's part of how God has wired me. Or it's it's my struggle or my burden in this season. That's your excuse. Well, God, through his word this morning, is saying to you, repent. Lay it aside. Lay it at the feet of Jesus even this morning. I spent a lot of time recently reading about a race. It's a uh, quirky and a fascinating race. It's an ultra marathon. That's a thing, an ultra marathon. It's called the Barkley Marathons with an S at the end. It's a 100 mile race in Frozen Head State Park in Tennessee. And it's inspired by the attempted escape of James Earl Ray, the assassin of MLK Jr. And he was attempting to escape from Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary, but he got stuck in the wilderness there. The race starts anytime from midnight to noon on race day, and the founder of the race blows a conch shell. An hour before the race, is sort of fittingly eerie one-hour warning. Then, to begin the race, he lights a cigarette. The race consists of five loops of approximately 20 miles each. And approximately, because this race has extreme vertical climbs and descents, For you runners out there, there's approximately 60,000 feet of climb and descent in this race. That's a whole lot of climb and descent if you're a runner. And of course, the course changes every single year, and so the race is always different. Each runner's successive loop is run in the opposite direction as your last loop. So just when you think you remember the course... And how this part goes, you become disoriented because it's all backwards. There are no aid stations, only two water stops the whole way. And along the way, runners must locate books hidden along the trail and tear out their bib number page that corresponds. The best part, you must finish the entire 100 miles in 60 minutes. Hours or less. A grueling pace and an absolute marathon of marathons. Since its founding in 1986, the Barclay Marathons has only been completed by 15 different people. A total of 18 times. The Barclay Marathons are set up for you to fail. This is a vivid picture of the kind of endurance we are to have, the difficulty and the length of the Christian race. We are to run with steadfastness and persistence and faithfulness. We are to abide in this race. We may not have a time limit or we may not have to tear out pages from books along the way, but the race of faith is like the Barclay Marathons. It's Why the author of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance. You've got to know what is coming ahead of of you in this race of faith, in this life. It's not going to be easy. But unlike the Barclays, the race of faith is set up for you to succeed. There is extreme vertical climb, but you've got to keep running. And you will feel at times like you are running in loops. But you've got to keep running. You're going to graduate and you're going to have to keep running. You're going to get rejected maybe from your dream graduate school. But you've got to keep running. And you're going to get into your third choice school and you've got to keep running. You're going to get a great job out of grad school and you've got to keep running And you might lose a job or get laid off. And you've got to keep running. You're going to get married maybe and have kids. And you're going to get old. It happens fast. And you're going to retire. And all along the way in the race of faith, you've got to keep moving forward. You've got to keep running. This race of faith that is set before us is a race like no other. It's Barclay after Barclay after Barclay. And so the author of Hebrews is saying to us, take off your warm-up suit and put down your phone for just a second and lay aside all that is not necessary, all that is competing with God or all that is contrary to God and run, run the race of faith. Run with endurance because you don't know how long you've got left. But those who receive commendation in this race are those who show they have faith. By actually running. If you have faith in Christ, run the race. That's the first essential function. You must run the race. The second is this. You must trust Jesus as the champion of a sure faith. You must trust Jesus as the champion of a sure faith. So we've seen thus far, very simply, we must run the race of faith, this race of endurance. Well, here in verse 2, we see a little bit of how we are supposed to run, the manner in which we are to run in order to win the prize. Look at verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We are to be looking to Jesus. The idea in the word looking or fixing our eyes here is to direct one's attention on something, to block out all distraction, to lock in on something, to focus solely on one thing. And that one thing is Jesus. Now, this is not speaking, at least yet, of his example to us in running the race. We'll get there. This is looking to Jesus because he is, what does it say there? the founder and perfecter of our faith. You see, we would be remiss this morning to look at Jesus simply as an example. We must first and foremost look to Jesus, fix our eyes on Jesus, because he is the one who established and accomplished our faith. He is the founder of the race, so to speak. This phrase, founder and perfecter, is reminiscent of chapter 3, verse 1. Turn there and see that. 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. These two descriptions of Jesus in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 12, verse 2, bookend the epistle of Hebrews, and... In 3 verse 1, Jesus is the apostle or the sent one, the messenger of God's revelation. And that message is revealed in his high priestly work. The Hebrews unpacks uh, this truth that Jesus cleansed God's people from sin and brought them into his very presence. And so the fact that Jesus' high priestly work is superior and efficacious is the message of Hebrews. And so Jesus, in chapter 3, verse 1, is the apostle and high priest. And in chapter 12, verse 2, our passage, after all of what the author of Hebrews proves throughout his great sermon, Jesus is, by his high priestly work, the founder and perfecter of a faith in which we can have access to God through faith, And it's a faith that is sure, secure, sealed. He has established a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus is the guarantor of a faith that is sure. Flip back again in chapter 1. On high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see the apostleship of Jesus being God's latest revelation to man. And yet here, the author of Hebrews is saying, This one, this apostle, is different than all the prophets. This Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Uh, Colossians one says it this way: He is the image of the invisible God, and so begins the logic. By the very nature of who Jesus is, we have a faith that is sure. Look at chapter four, verse fourteen. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavenly, the, through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus is the great high priest, the very son of God, yet one who, born as a man, is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And so while truly tempted, he did not sin. And so by that sympathetic sinlessness of our great high priest, we have a faith that is sure. Look at chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, just as God himself was the guarantee of his covenant with Abraham, so we have a hope in Jesus that is sure and steadfast, an anchor of the soul, Jesus is our forerunner, the one who paved the way for this race. And he has gained us access to God. And so we have a faith that is sure. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant team mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Not only do we have a superior great high priest in Jesus, the covenant itself is superior. Jesus has a superior ministry that reflects heavenly realities by the grace of God and is enacted on better, clearer promises, promises of a clean heart and entry into the presence of God. And so crossroads, we have a faith that is sure. Look at chapter nine, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Chapter 10, verse 11. sanctified the sacrifice of jesus on the cross once for all one for us in eternal redemption we don't need as israel needed a priest to stand daily making sacrifices christ jesus has paid it all and so we have a faith that is sure I think chapter 10 verses 19 through 23 summarizes everything we've seen so far in Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus himself, has made the sacrifice for our sins and has given us confidence to enter into the presence of God. What a beautiful truth. We're going to go back to the Barkley Marathons because we can. And I spent too much time reading about it. The founder, Gary Cantrell, his middle name, he says, is Lazarus Lake. Gary Lazarus Lake Cantrell. It's like a rap name or something. Uh, he's a former, emphasis on former, distance runner and as maybe you'd guess, a current cigarette aficionado. He's as fickle and unpredictable as they come. He started this year's race three weeks ahead of normal. And what most think is, at what most think is 64-years-old Cantrell no longer runs like he used to. The founder has never been a finisher in his own race. And in his sweet yet sick sense of humor in how he designs the Barclay Marathons, he, as we've said before, wants you to fail. Our race, the race of faith, has a perfect founder. The faithful, ever true Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is not out for you to fail. He is on, uh, on our side. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has, the book of Hebrews says, established. And he will always maintain the way for us through the veil into the presence of God. This, Crossroads, is a faith that is Sure. And as we run the race of faith, this is why chapter 12, verse 2 says we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. We are to look to Jesus continually, daily, ongoingly, because the very existence of the race itself and the outcome of that race is secured, guaranteed, won by him. We have every reason, as Hebrew shows, to be confident in him. The very sight of Jesus encourages us, helps us, instills in us the sureness of our faith. And so as we run the race of faith, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Finally, and briefly, we see a third essential function of the race of faith, and that's this. You must follow Jesus' example of faithful endurance. You must follow Jesus' example of faithful endurance. In verse 2, we saw the primary significance of what it means to look to Jesus. It's a vision of, of... a view of Jesus that gives us supreme confidence and assurance in the race of faith because of what he has done and who he is. Well, here in the rest of our passage, verses two through four, the author of Hebrews also calls us to look to Jesus not only as the source of new life and the founder of our faith, but as our supreme example in running the race. Look again at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Here we see Jesus' example of steadfast endurance in the face of opposition. You see, not only did Jesus' work on the cross win our salvation, here in this text, his faithful endurance en route to the cross is an example to us as we run the race of faith. We have the example of the cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, but the author and perfecter is the paradigm. The enabler of faith is the exemplar of faith. Jesus is the champion and the case in point. He is what Hebrews calls our forerunner. He has paved the way and he sets the pace. He has shown us what it takes and then some. The middle of verse 2 gives us a little more of the logic in this. Jesus regarded the joy set before him, the joy of obedience and the joy of victory and the joy of doing the Father's will, He regarded it as far greater value than that of his own comfort or his own desires or his own will or his own worth and even his own life. Jesus, for the joy of honoring and glorifying his father, endured the cross. The author of Hebrews describes this here as despising the shame. That is, Jesus saw the shame as inherent to his going to the cross. He knew the humiliation and torture that would occur. He knew, as Isaiah 53 said, he, he was to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, Jesus knew he was to be despised by men. He knew he was to be put to shame, yet he still signed up and he despised that shame. The author of Hebrews is saying he despised the fact that he was being despised. He considered the shame inherent to this work as nothing, as not worth comparing to the joy that was set before him, which is what we are called to do as we run the race. And so he is our example of the race set before us. At the end of verse 2, Jesus, after he made the sacrifice for sin, sat down at the right hand of God. It's a phrase that we've seen already multiple times in Hebrews. This act of finality, this signal of finished work, an authoritative and honorable seat for King Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then verse 3 is an echo of the call to endurance. Look at verse 3 again. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider his example. Consider that amidst all the beatings and floggings, all of the mocking and spitting, the unjust accusations and unfair questionings, Jesus endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He could have called upon his father to send down twelve legions of angels. He could have justified himself. He could have cleared his own name. But Jesus chose to bear our shame and he endured the cross. And so the author of Hebrews says, consider this Jesus that you too may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And verse 4 is just icing on the cake, an argument of greater to lesser in a sense. You see, if Jesus endured the cross, even shedding his own blood, even to the point of death, running the race, obeying the Father, even to the point of death, how much more, as we consider this example in Jesus, can we also run the race set before us with endurance? Let's go back just one more time. Allow me to the Barkley Marathons as we close. The way to enter this race, the way to apply to this race is to write an essay. And you need to answer the prompt, why I should be allowed to run the Barkley. If you're one of the lucky 40 chosen each year, you receive from Laz a Letter of Condolence. Runners are then required to pay an entrance fee of a dollar and sixty cents and send in a pair of Laz's favorite dress socks or perhaps a pack of camel cigarettes, whatever it is that Laz is feeling that year. And if you successfully jump through all of these hoops and all of the steps are followed, on race day, runners are required to bring a license plate from their state or country and wait for the conch shell. All of that for a race that you are, if you're like me, in all likelihood, never going to finish anyways. The Barkley Marathons sure have a lot of entry requirements for a race that you're going to fail. The race of faith, the race we are called to, uh, to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus has no entry fee, not even a measly a dollar and sixty cents. Our entry fee has been paid by the blood of Christ. It's all of grace, a free gift of God. And so Crossroads, is some of you enter this race and others of you actually start to run in this season and others of you continue to run and as all, as we all continue to run this race for a lifetime, let us run the race. Let us trust Jesus, the champion of a sure faith and let us look to Jesus for his example of faithful endurance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word because in it we see what we are to do in response to the sure salvation that we have in Jesus. And so thank you, Lord, for Hebrews and the reminder that it is, uh, that there is abundant grace in the gospel. And yet, Father, there is a reality and a responsiveness to faith uh, that you have called us to. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful by your grace, and help us, Lord, to look to the Savior, look to Jesus every moment of our race of faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.